The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. He was the richest man in the South before the Civil War, but he declared bankruptcy after the war. He was untrained in military ways, but rose to become the most professional cavalry commander in the Confederacy. He believed firmly in white supremacy, but he supported voting rights for former slaves. Writers have worshipped him as a Southern hero or vilified him as an unrepentant rebel. Who was the real Wade Hampton? Join us with biographer Rod Andrew Jr. as we look beneath the contradictions of this fascinating figure today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Answer the president's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, starting our sixth season today, and as true in the previous five seasons, not speaking on behalf of the university uh, or for anyone else. My guest likewise speaks only for himself, not for me. Uh, it was interesting to hear that the show uh, now has a World Talk Radio legal tag before it starts, that the opinions are just those of the host and guest and so on. Uh, well done, World Talk Radio, to make sure that we don't uh, say anything that would that would disgrace that organization uh, or East Carolina University or anyone else. So uh, it is a new season, the, the sixth of World Talk Radio. It's an August afternoon right now in 2009 as we resume the academic year and resume our weekly shows. There will be some excellent shows in the weeks ahead. Looking forward uh, today to talking about Wade Hampton, the Confederate leader, during and after the Civil War uh, with our guest. And next week we'll be talking about uh, someone from the other side of the line, uh, uh, the always controversial Dan Sickles. Uh, a new book about him has come out in the past year, and we'll have the author on to discuss that, and lots of other interesting books in the weeks ahead. As always, your suggestions for new show ideas are welcome. Uh, your contributions to the Civil War talk radio 
Book Fund are welcome likewise. Send them uh, by PayPal to civilwartr at aol.com. And if you send a contribution there, uh, I'll be happy to send you a copy of uh, one of my books, Did Lincoln Own Slaves or All for the Regiment? Uh, let me know if you're interested in that. I will be speaking at various places uh, around the southeast in the months ahead, but we'll save that for another week as we get the schedule of uh, speaking engagements firmed up. But I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Civil War talk radio listeners in different places. That's one of the fun things I've encountered in going to talk to Civil War roundtables or other groups, that there is usually someone there who listens to the show and uh, often has some good ideas for, for future guests. So, uh, one other technical thing to uh, cover before we get into today's discussion is the uh, accessibility of past shows. A number of people have written to me over the summer about the uh, difficulty hearing some of the past shows that are archived on the World Talk Radio website. In many cases, there are shows that were recorded in three segments, but only one of them appears. Uh, I'm not sure how or why that is. I'm not... Uh, personally able to do too much about it, but I'm looking into it, and if those second and third segments of shows turn out to be permanently inaccessible through World Talk Radio, uh, I will see about collecting versions from listeners or from my own collection and getting them posted either on the, uh, the show website or if they can't do that in some other source to make all the past shows available as, as they ought to be. Uh, so I thank everyone who has written to inquire about that. I apologize for those I haven't replied to yet. Uh, uh, the number is, is larger than, it, than I wish it were. And we'll eventually try to figure out just what it is that has gone on with the past uh, archive shows of World Talk Radio. But hopefully the show and the, the current ones will continue to be archived where you can find them. If you're listening to this, then I guess that's the case, at least with the first segment, and I, I hope the others as well. So let's talk then with our guest today. Uh, he is the author of uh, this biography of Wade Hampton, subtitled Confederate Warrior to Southern Redeemer, uh, Rod Andrew Jr. Uh, Rod, are you there? I'm here. Oh, we'll try again. Rod, are you there? Uh, yes, I'm here. There he is. Excellent. Welcome to the show, and thank you for being on. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jerry. Uh, I've, I've got your book in hand here. It is a... Uh, a large and handsome volume from UNC Press. Uh, I, when I first was thinking about writing about the Army of the Ohio many years ago as a graduate student, uh, uh, it was it, uh, Lou Bateman then with UNC Press came to visit and gave me a copy of their book of uh, the, the memoirs of, uh, of uh, Alexander, the uh, Confederate artilleryman. And it was just a beautifully produced book, and yours is very much in the same vein, uh, just a nice size, and uh, uh, UNC Press really does a good job with these things. I, I think they did, a, they did a great job with it, uh, the dust jacket and uh, I was happy with it, too. Yeah, it, it, uh, it looks very nice. Now, uh, before talking about the book, uh, listeners often want to know a little bit about the author. Uh, you are currently a, a professor at uh, Clemson University, is that right? Uh, that's right. And how long have you been there? Um, I've been here since 2000. Uh, yeah. I was I had a temporary job teaching at the University of Georgia for a year, 
here, and I taught at Citadel for two years. And, and uh, also, I understand, serve in the Marine Corps Reserve as well. Yeah, I uh, did three and a, about three and a half years of active duty. Um, got out right after Desert Storm, and I've been in the Reserves ever since. Uh, now, when you were at uh, uh, Georgia, I was talking about uh, shows uh, here on campus with some of my colleagues and uh, Karen Zipp, who teaches uh, here at East Carolina and has written about uh, North Carolina history, Southern history in the 20th century, uh, uh, is is apparently an old uh, Georgia colleague of yours. Yeah, um, Karen and I and her husband, uh, John, endured the uh, highs and lows of, of graduate school together at Georgia Ph.D. program. And uh, Jonathan Saris was uh, a guest on this show. In fact, he's written about uh, the uh, upper, the, the northern counties of Georgia during the war. Right. So uh, we, we've had him on as well. So, so Karen, I will certainly pass on, on your greetings. They, uh, just to, uh, to keep the, the Georgia string going, this past year, uh, East Carolina uh, has just hired Todd Bennett, uh, from the State Department, uh, who I understand also, uh, uh, he, he, I believe he said he was a, a teaching instructor for you at one point. That's right, yeah. He was, uh, that year that I taught at Georgia, at a TA, uh, one of those classes, and, and he was it. Uh, very, uh, very sharp guy. Well, we're, we're glad to have landed him here at East Carolina, and, uh, Eventually, uh, perhaps uh, you know, the entire department will have a Georgia connection as we keep bringing people in. Well, let's talk about Wade Hampton, uh, who has uh, not much of a Georgia connection, but certainly a South Carolina uh, man. You're, you're, well, one of the first things that, that, that a person might ask is, do we, you know, how many more Civil War books do we need? This is always a question. Uh, surely somebody has written biographies of a figure uh, as large, uh, who looms as large in Confederate uh, military history as Wade Hampton. Uh, why did you decide uh, we need another biography of Hampton? Well, uh, when I, well, let me be honest, and you know, initially when I decided to uh, look in more closely into Wade Hampton's story, it was purely for professional uh, reasons. I was needed needed another book topic. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I realized that uh, when I started, the last biography of Hampton had been published in 1949. Um, and it was, it's a very readable biography, um, it's, uh, certainly outdated, uh, very sentimental, and, and had a romantic view of Hampton. Um, and uh, the some of the more the modern literature that, that's not really biographical, but really just looks at uh, Hampton's role, particularly after the war, gave a, uh, a completely different portrait. Scholars uh, hmm. today seem to be moving more and more towards portraying Hampton in a more negative light. This is a hypocrite um, who espoused uh, magnanimity and moderation, but really he was secretly encouraging uh, the Klan and so forth. So I really thought, I, I got intrigued, and I wanted to try to work out the uh, 
So, um, Rod, I'm, your voice is dropping out occasionally. You don't, by any chance, have your computer on as we're talking. Um, I do. Should I turn it off? Yeah. It, do see if that helps. Okay. That that because that's the echo. Uh, uh, if it's if it's coming through the the broadcast, maybe that's it's feeding back and causing some of your words to blank out, and I know our listeners want to hear that. I also have you on speakerphone, and if it doesn't get better, I'll just... Oh, if you you could take that off, that would be a big help. Okay, let me try that. Yes. Okay. That is much better. Okay. That's going to help us a lot. There we go. All right. Well, so so people had portrayed Hampton, as you say, in different ways, uh, negatively sometimes or worshipfully in other cases. Um, I guess uh, I'd be curious to go through chronologically here and to start with the, the pre-war Wade Hampton. Uh, all I knew of him before starting your book, uh, or the thumbnail sketch I knew of him, was he was he was a very rich man, and there were some issues with James Henry Hammond. Uh, so maybe, maybe let's talk about his family first. Okay, sure. Um, Hampton, you know, by the way, the, the Wade Hampton we're talking about is Wade Hampton the third. Um, his grandfather. Um, who I call Wade Hampton the first in the book um, was a Revolutionary War general. He was sort of a local hero of the Revolution, um, uh, a sort of self-made man who really who built the family fortune with through land and slaves, um, and a very hard-bitten man. Um, uh, Wade Hampton the second, uh, Hampton's Hampton's father, um, had. Had seven children, uh, well, actually, I guess, I guess eight, um, and uh, Hampton was the oldest, and uh, he was raised from a young age to uh, uh, he was raised to command. He was expected to be the next patriarch. Uh, he was uh, a quiet, reserved young man, but always very confident in his physical ability. Um, outstanding horseman, um, outstanding hunter, uh, and, and so forth. Um, but the, the scandal you're referring to is uh, when four of Hampton's younger sisters were molested by their uncle by marriage, who happened to be the governor of South Carolina, James Henry Hammond. Um, it, uh, it, was, it was an intriguing situation. By that time, Hampton himself was grown and had a family of his own. He was still a young man, but uh, he really deferred to his father on how to handle that. I'm sure he wanted to uh, to thrash Hammond <laughs> for molesting his sisters when it when it came out. Um, but uh, Hampton's father decided to try to... Uh, he, he, he could have challenged Hammond to a duel. He would have been well within his rights, but that would have made the scandal even more public because a, a duel was an inherently public event, particularly if you challenged the governor of the state. That would be It would be known nationwide. Uh, so Hampton's father just chose to try to uh, ruin Hammond uh, politically, and uh, he really did thwart Hammond's ambitions for the next uh, 17, 18 years. And uh, Hammond eventually did become a U.S. senator, but only after uh, uh, Hampton's father had died. So uh, we don't we don't know too much directly from the Hampton. We don't know anything. Hampton's uh, I'm sure they wrote about this to each other, but none of that has survived. All we really know is uh, is from James Henry Hammond's diary, in which he was sort of trying to justify his own behavior. 
And uh, uh, Drew Faust, of course, has written a great uh, biography of Hammond that, that gives yes. that side of the picture. But it, I thought it was interesting. You point out that uh, Hampton, uh, the father, could have could have challenged uh, Hammond to a duel, or he could have, uh, if he thought this behavior was so despicable that, that James Henry Hammond was no longer a peer, no longer a, uh, entitled to be challenged, he could have just uh, horsewhipped him or, or, or thrashed him. But if you do that to the governor of the state, it really demeans the entire state. Yes, it, it disgraces the entire state, and, and it also makes uh, uh, his daughter's disgrace more public. Um, now, unfortunately, it was it became too public anyway. The, too many people found out, and these four attractive, wealthy uh, young ladies never received marriage proposals. So, um, it was it was uh, it was a it was a tragedy anyway. And uh, it, it well, really a, a fascinating story, and certainly one that had to have shaped Hamptons. Uh, the Wade Hampton III's career. Now he, as you say, he didn't take direct action because his father was was the responsible patriarch at this point. Um, when does when does Wade Hampton III come into his own? When does he become the? Well, his father died in 1858, and at that point, um, Hampton was the new patriarch over his two younger brothers, and uh, and at that by that time only four younger sisters. And uh, I think they they did look up to him as the new leader of the family. And it's very interesting that I think Hampton, particularly his youngest sister, um, Mary Fisher, who was who was much younger than uh, than he was, he treated her as much as a daughter uh, as he did uh, a younger sister. And she she really, really looked up to and idolized her older brother. Um, so at that point, he's, to answer your question, that's when he really came into his own as the new leader of, of the family. And and he was uh, extremely wealthy, even by the standards of a, a southern planter. He was extremely wealthy. Um, what most of his contemporaries perhaps didn't realize is that um, uh, his father was not as astute a businessman as his grandfather had been. So while they while the Hamptons by the time uh, Wade Hampton II died, they had a lot of land and a lot of slaves. They also had a lot of debt. Um, so as the Civil War began, Wade Hampton III inherited not only his, you know, a lot of his father's estate, which he divvied out among his siblings, but uh, also a lot of his debt. And so, it, you know, it, with the with the chaos of the war and all the loss of the war, uh, that's uh, that's what did Hampton in economically. And the the land he owned, uh, I thought was interesting, was not just in South Carolina, but he had a lot of land in Mississippi also. Yeah, even more land in Mississippi. That that, that was the source of their wealth, was the, the cotton lands along the Mississippi. Uh, their home was always Columbia, South Carolina, but but uh, the wealth came from Mississippi. Well, this, this is a good point where we'll take a break with the war about to begin. We're talking today with Rod Andrew, Jr., author of Wade Hampton, Confederate Warrior to Southern Redeemer. We'll come back in just a moment and talk more on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
Everyone knows what a regiment or a battery is, but what was Hampton's Legion all about? We'll find out when we come back on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure. 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Rod Andrew, Jr., author of Wade Hampton, Confederate Warrior to Southern Redeemer. Uh, We've been talking about this uh, very interesting character, one who uh, I will confess before reading his book, I saw as sort of a a cardboard Confederate, uh, a rich planter before the war, governor, redeemer, governor of South Carolina after the war, the second chair to Jeb Stewart during the war. And uh, it, it seems there's a great deal more to the story. We talked in our first segment about Hampton's pre-war career, uh, the, the third in line of, from Wade Hampton, the first uh, revolutionary hero, Wade Hampton II, uh, and then his own uh, coming to the leadership of his family and its uh, enormous wealth as well as its uh, somewhat checkered past in dealings with some of the other elites of South Carolina. But 1861, war breaks out, and, and surely there's no question uh, uh, about Hampton uh, going to war, even though he did not favor secession, as I understand. Is that correct? He was, yeah, He, as I say, he was one of the least um, eager secessionists <laughs> um, and, and, and the most secession-eager slave states, so. But he certainly had a lot to lose, I guess, with the war breaking out. Well, that, that's my thought. I, I think that Hampton saw secession um, as uh, the door to unrest and uh, confusion and, uh, and instability. And he was pretty happy with his antebellum life. So there's, uh, those at the top of the pyramid, like him, really had nothing to gain by turning this all upside down. Well, I, I don't. I thought. I think he thought the threat to slavery was was more theoretical than real. Um, he he never doubted that secession was legal. He just didn't think it was necessary or or advisable. Uh, but once 
once it occurred, um, once South Carolina was was clearly uh, intent on forming a new republic, I think he was determined that he was going to be no less the founding father than his grandfather had been, uh, and he he would not be he did not want to be seen as anything less than a uh, a full South Carolina patriot. So uh, once the war began, he was. Uh, he he was literally in the front rank. Well, he he raises a unit. Uh, it was common in every state. All our listeners know for individuals to recruit their friends, create companies, eventually regiments, uh, or perhaps artillery batteries. But Hampton makes his own miniature army. Uh, uh, tell us about the Hampton Legion. Well, the, the Hampton Legion was was to consist of six companies of entry, uh, infantry. Uh, four troops of cavalry or four companies of cavalry and, and an artillery battery. And it didn't quite work out that way, but it was roughly along those lines. Um, there were other legions that were raised during the war, but it was still fairly unique. It was a unique arrangement. And uh, as the war went on, um, both armies, or I think it's more common in the Confederacy, but they realized that it was an unwieldy arrangement, and in fact, never did all the portions of Hampton's legion ever fight together. Uh, he he had the infantry portion at Manassas. Um, later, he led. Later, the cavalry portion became part of his uh, of his cavalry brigade when he switched from being an, an infantry to a cavalry commander. Well, let's. let's... Talk about his career then. At, at Manassas, he uh, he commands the infantry of the Hampton Legion. Uh, how did he do in his first battle? Well, he he did remarkably, I, th- I think, surprisingly well for a man who had no military experience. Um, he uh, what Hampton showed at, Mana- at Manassas, I think, turned out to be one of his his one of his strongest traits as a commander is that he was remarkably cool under fire. Uh, this was, uh, you know, Civil War students know that Manassas was a very chaotic battle with inexperienced officers and inexperienced troops who had never seen terror or noise or bloodshed or confusion on this level. And uh, he did not order precipitate charges. Um, he, at one point, the Hampton Legion, as, as the Confederate Army was was reeling backward in the in, in the early phases of the battle. The Hampton Legion was the only significant organized resistance for uh, for over an hour, um, and uh, you know Stonewall Jackson gets much of the credit for uh, stabilizing the Confederate line, but he would not have been able to do so if without the stand that uh, that Hampton made. So he he did do well. He did do a lot of he, he did get a lot of credit for it. Uh, he was wounded. Um, and uh, I, th- I think he, that's where he began to really make a name for himself, uh, not just as a wealthy planter, but as someone who, uh, who actually knew how to lead in combat. Uh, he, he not only led in combat, he actually participated uh, in combat, not, not at Manassas only, but, but throughout the war. He, uh, he tended to get himself right in the thick of things and, and to uh, not be shy about killing uh, the enemy individually. Well, Hampton, uh, he, he definitely, uh, in, like like many Civil War officers, they they believed to uh, vindicate their right to lead. They had to constantly be, they had to constantly show that they were willing to be in the front lines. Um, 
as gentle as a man as people people who knew Hampton um, thought him to be in private. Um, I think he uh, he did take some pride in his uh, uh, in, in the fact that he was a powerful <laughs> a warrior. He 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 knew exactly how many men he had personally killed in combat. Um, you know, thirty years after the war was over, a friend of his writes and he and he says, "Well, I I killed eleven, you know, nine with my pistol and two with my saber." <laughs> Um, so I, I think he did take pride in his in his prowess. And I mean, you mentioned he was an excellent horseman. He was also a big man. He uh, was physically powerful, uh, about six feet tall, around two hundred pounds as a younger man. Later, later in life, maybe two forty, um, which was uh, large in those days. Uh, and and yeah, he took a he. he I think he took some pride in his in his physical prowess, his physical ability. There is a, a story that that comes up, sort of jumping ahead uh, to the Gettysburg campaign. We'll we'll backtrack in a moment, but uh, you include a, a, a story about him that you also uh, then go ahead and discredit that story, uh, the individual uh, exploits of Hampton. Yeah, it's really tell us um, that story. It, it, it's such a remarkable story, um, but to me, it's it's uh, it's clearly false, and it's it's kind of humorous that uh, uh, biographer after biographer has repeated it. Um, but supposedly, uh, is is at Gettysburg? It's on the eastern side of the town uh, where a lot of the cavalry action took place, and supposedly Hampton was reconnoitering by himself with no aides, no staff, um, and. He ended up in this bizarre duel with a Union soldier, and Hampton had a pistol, and a Union soldier had a rifle. And this duel took place at a range of about 125 yards, which Hampton was enough of a sportsman to know that uh, <laughs> that those were not good terms. Uh, pistol's not as accurate uh, at 125 yards as a rifle by any means. And at one point even... Uh, uh, Hampton delayed firing another shot because his opponent was not ready to to, <laughs> to fire yet. Um, and then, uh, in the midst of this, a Union lieutenant rode up behind Hampton without Hampton uh, knowing he was there and slashed him over the skull with a saber. And Hampton chased after him, cursing. His pistol wouldn't fire anymore, so he threw the pistol after this, uh, uh, this Union lieutenant. Um, and... First of all, Hampton did not curse very often. Uh, no one has ever recalled him cursing. And uh, he he just wasn't that sort. Of, he was a much more pragmatic individual than to uh, engage in this silly duel. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I, it, it did not happen. And the only, the, the only source, the only one who ever told this story was a man uh, named Thomas J. Mackey, who, who was not in Robert E. Lee's army. And... Uh, certainly was not there, and he said that no other Confederate witnessed the event. And so I wonder, well, where did Mackey get this story from? Well, Mackey said that he got it from Wade Hampton's younger brother, Frank. Well, Frank, the only problem with that is Frank Hampton died before the Battle of Gettysburg. So mm, uh, it, it didn't happen. So the the source, the, the trail is not there. The trail goes cold. Yeah. Um, but it does reflect, I guess, the folklore of Wade Hampton as this individual warrior. 
It does, and but it's but no one else repeated it. None of none of his contemporaries. And there are other stories about Hampton, including at the Battle of Gettysburg, that are not only more believable but just as romantic and and thrilling, um, that are true. <laughs> so, uh, in, in fact, you can count for both uh, account for all three of Hampton's wounds at Gettysburg with a um, with a much more reliable uh, account. So he was, in fact, slashed on the head at that battle. He was slashed on the head twice um, within a few minutes of, of each other, and then he was, he received either a pistol ball or a piece of shrapnel in his hip, uh, all in a, in a space of maybe an hour. So uh, he spent some time, obviously, convalescing from these wounds. He was also wounded, you said, at Manassas, so he wasn't... Was mm-hmm. he in the Seven Days campaign? And in seven, at the Battle of Seven Days, yeah. He was returned for that action. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as you say, he fought at Gettysburg. At some point, he moves from commanding infantry to cavalry. How did that come about? Uh, that came about after the uh, Seven Days campaign. Um, the problem with, you know, Hampton wanted to be promoted to brigadier general from colonel, which in, he, he felt like he deserved the promotion. The problem was um, to do that, he had to be separated from the Hampton Legion because he had not been able to expand its size to that of a brigade. So by the Seven Days Campaign, Hampton is, is literally a brigadier general without a brigade, and they they needed to find a place for him. And so they transferred him to uh, to the cavalry. And so that was that was in the summer of 1862. Now, the... the- I guess the problem with serving in the cavalry is is you're working with Jeb Stuart and he sort of overshines everybody around him. Yeah, that's a, a very interesting relationship. Um, uh, you know, as you know, as your listeners know, you know, Hampton uh, Stewart was a very charismatic, exuberant personality. He saw war as an, a romantic adventure. Um, Hampton was not only much more older and uh, Perhaps mature. I don't mean that in a in a, in a value added way, but um, uh, but he was completely opposite in his personality, and so Hampton and Stewart never really got along, uh, and yet they did have respect for each other as as soldiers. So very very interesting relationship. There the really are. You draw some interesting contrasts between them, as you say, the age and, and maturity level. In 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 the sense, uh, is there the outlook on life is different. Mm-hmm. Um, I was struck by how how uh, Hampton is so much uh, more professional in some ways than than Stewart and many of the others in in the Army of Northern Virginia who did have a professional. Uh, training. There, there's that old saying uh, that you know amateurs study tactics, professionals study logistics. Right. Um, Hammond's very good at taking care of his men. Yeah, and to me, I think I think he brought that paternalism, that sense that, that he was responsible for his inferiors, if you will, his subordinates. He brought that to the army from his pre-war life, in, in which he was supposed to be the provider and protector for uh, for his uh, siblings. Um, he was supposed to be a provider for hundreds of slaves and, and, and so forth. And it, it came naturally to him that that was part of his duty. And it just so happens that that is a very important trait of military leadership. And you know, as Douglas Southall Freeman pointed out, and many others have pointed out, um, 
troops who know their commanders will look out for their welfare uh, tend to be more loyal to their unit and and perform better in combat. So it it, it worked out for him in that, in that regard. So although he has the, the image of being the pre-war wealthy planter, he did not luxuriate uh, while his troops suffered. He, he took care to see that they were uh, fed uh, as best he could do. Yeah, and, and fortunately, you know, Hampton represented the best of that aristocratic, chivalric tradition, I think. And, and just because some, someone was a Southern aristocrat doesn't mean that they fulfilled all the social duties that were expected of them. Um, but uh, Hampton did fairly well in that regard. Now, the, the, the paragon of Southern aristocracy, Robert E. Lee, uh, had a, a nephew serving in the cavalry, uh, and, and uh, Fitzley and Hampton have some, some issues. Or, yeah. Or, or actually <laughs> that, a son, not his nephew. That was another rivalry, and, and Fitzley's personality was much more like Stewart's. And, in fact, um, uh, Hampton always suspected Stewart of favoritism towards Fitzley. And, they, you know, they were – Fitz and Hampton were both brigade commanders under Stewart, and then they were both uh, division commanders under him. Um and Fitz Lee was a was a, an excellent officer as well, but when Hampton, when Stuart dies and Hampton becomes the senior uh, cavalry officer in, in Lee's cavalry corps, and, and Fitz Lee has to serve under Hampton, uh, uh, Fitz is not that cooperative. I mean, he he really failed Hampton at the Battle of Trevilian Station, and it Hampton had to uh, decide um, whether he was going to make a big stink about it, um, court-martial Fitz Lee, or... or um, that, just, that would be tough to do. <laughs> it really was, particularly because Hampton had, had gotten in hot water with, with Robert E. Lee about four or five months before. So um, I think it was a test of his leadership. How would he handle that situation? Now, the uh, You mentioned Trevelyan Station, uh, the battle, uh, a great cavalry battle from 1864, where uh, uh, Lee Fitzley does not necessarily uh, serve Hampton ideally. Um, but talk about the, the the tactical leadership of of uh, Wade Hampton. Well, he in was that battle or any battle. Well, um, I, I guess that's a that's a good way to uh, talk about Hampton's tactics. Um, Trevelyan was sort of a classic example of what made Hampton a different sort of commander than Stuart. Um, Stuart was excellent at reconnaissance. He was good at nipping at the enemy's flanks, conducting raids and ambushes. Uh, Hampton was the, the sort of commander who liked to take his every man he had to the fight, um, every piece of horse artillery, and just slug it out in a stand-up, toe-to-toe fight. Uh, and that's exactly what he did at Trevelyan. Um, so in other words, he relied on the principle of mass uh, rather than you know, economy of force. Uh, Hampton also um, had adopted the tactic of riding to dismounting his men so that they could fight on foot like infantry. And I, want to, I want to pursue that a little bit. We're going to take another short break and come back, talk more about cavalry tactics and other things in the career of Wade Hampton with Hampton's biographer, Rod Andrew Jr. We'll do that in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 
the World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. After the Civil War, few people were more closely identified with the lost cause and unrepentant secessionism than Wade Hampton. But few also fought as long for black voting rights. Who was the real Wade Hampton? We'll talk about that when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. My husband and I, we met at a strip mall dance. He was 20, I was 17. It was a beautiful strip mall built by my grandfather after he'd emigrated from Holland to be a farmer. Anyway, when I saw my husband at that dance, I realized I'd seen him before at a big rally at the highway on-ramp for all the men who'd enlisted. He was going to war. Two weeks later, he left for basic training. Oh, I cried my eyes out that day. His train left the car dealership. But we rode to each other every day. I rode my bike the ten miles to the high-rise each morning, just so I could meet the mail when it got there. Four years later, he came home to me, and we married at the little convenience store downtown. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, Visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back. Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Rod Andrew Jr. about Wade Hampton, Confederate warrior to Southern Redeemer. We were talking in our last segment about Hampton's uh, career as a cavalry leader, uh, his and, and just discussing his use of, of tactics, dismounting his troops to fight uh, as if they were infantry once they'd gotten where they needed to be, using the mobility of their uh, of their mounts. Uh, now, Hampton, uh, well, as people listening to the show are well aware, dismounted tactics become the way cavalry fights by the late 19th century. Uh, the, the mounted charge on horseback is romantic, but uh, tactically uh, suicidal in most cases. Uh, but there's a lot of use for, for uh, operational mobility for, for cavalry, for getting from place to place in a hurry between battles uh, and one of the most notable examples of that is when Hampton goes out to uh, to get some dinner for the Army of Northern Virginia. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, what, you're referring, of course, to the, the great beefsteak raid of September 1864, um, in which Hampton shows that, yes, he could um, employ cavalry in a, in a more traditional fashion um, when, when the opportunity arose. And one of his scouts reported a large herd of federal cattle um, you know, miles behind Union lines, uh, about 2,500 head of cattle, and that this herd was relatively unprotected if, if Hampton could get around the flank of the Union Army, which uh, is what he did, and he, 
he came out with almost all of the cattle, um, plus a, uh, uh, a number of, of federal prisoners. And it was, it was an embarrassment to the Union Army, uh, particularly the Union Cavalry, and is much appreciated by Robert E. Lee's army, uh, who, uh, you know, who knows how long it had been since they had had fresh beef for dinner. Um, but, you know, obviously it was, it was a morale builder. It was, it was a stupendous feat on one hand, but, of course, it, it did not prolong the Confederacy's existence. Now, you make the point to, in your book that when you're sort of reduced to, to tactics like that to, to feed the army, uh, you're getting pretty near the last ditch. Now, one of the uh, issues that comes up between Hampton's men and uh, the Army generally, uh, it, you pointed out they, that he, he wasn't necessarily treated ideally by, uh, by Stuart. Uh, the, the Army of Northern Virginia seems to favor Virginians, uh, and, and Hampton's men are from the Carolinas. They never get sent down to North or South Carolina to recuperate the way the, the Virginia brigades do until the end of the war, 1864, when Hampton is sent uh, to, to, to fight Sherman in, in South Carolina. Uh, that's his own home. How does, how does that work out for him? Uh, as, as far as being transferred to South Carolina? Yes. Well, I, I think... Um... Uh, you know, Hampton relished the opportunity to defend his home turf, and now here he is. You know, be careful what you ask for. Um, he's he has to defend his own hometown of Columbia uh, against uh, Sherman's army. I for, and I forget the ratio of forces, but it was he was outnumbered something like ten to one. Um, and a very uh, the, the the defenses of South Carolina were in a very confused state. The chain of uh, command relationships had not been sorted out, and now here he is in this hopeless situation. And um, uh, as Hampton is with, you know, he he doesn't want to fight in the streets and, and ensure the destruction of the city, so he withdraws. And to this day, we don't know exactly what happened, but uh, apparently some cotton caught on fire as Hampton's men are withdrawing and or as Union troops are arriving, and uh, uh, much of Columbia burns to the ground. And uh, Sherman deliberately tries to pin the blame on Hampton. Now, for the chivalric uh, uh, Southern leader who, you know, the, the highest call of chivalry is home defense, this is the ultimate disaster. Not only did he fail to defend uh, uh, protect Columbia, uh, defend it successfully, uh, but it burned to the ground, and he was blamed for the fire. And so Hampton fought that charge uh, that he considered a deliberate slander by Sherman the rest of his life. Nothing infuriated him more than that charge by Sherman. Uh, interestingly, uh, Hampton and Sherman go on to have correspondence about treatment of foragers. Uh, uh, I had have used in class many times Sherman and Hood's uh, correspondence outside of Atlanta uh, to discuss how how the war is conducted by 1864. But Sherman really could not resist uh, writing letters to his opponents as well as fighting them, apparently. <laughs> well, um, I think, uh, uh, as I said in the book, when, when Sherman complains to Hampton about Hampton's men shooting foragers, uh, it gives Hampton a chance to say publicly 
uh, probably what he'd been wanting to say for a long time. And the reply was pretty much uh, uh, union soldiers who rob and burn houses and insult ladies. Uh, you're darn right, my men shoot them. <laughs> yeah, and uh, by uh, by making that claim, he he is he is really in effect he's claiming that he is chivalrous because home defense again is the highest call of chivalry. And uh, you can uh, a chivalric a chivalrous person should be magnanimous in victory, but when it comes to defending ladies and houses, um, he can be uh, bloodthirsty. So. Uh, Hampton was like, uh, yeah, you know, anytime I catch your men burning houses, uh, uh, I hope my men do shoot them. <laughs> now, if there was one uh, Union officer that, that Hampton liked even less than Sherman, uh, that would have to be uh, Kilpatrick. Yeah, uh, he, he, I think he, he certainly hated Kilpatrick as well. Um, but interestingly, after the war, Kilpatrick, sort of gave Hampton his due and admitted that Hampton had uh, surprised him uh, and, and initially had routed him at the, at the Battle of Monroe's Crossroads um, in, in early 1865. Um, Kilpatrick never supported Sherman's assertions that Hampton was to blame for the fire in Columbia. And so, you know, in, in Hampton's search for vindication after the war, he can sort of forgive Kilpatrick, but he never forgave Sherman. Well, the uh, the attempt uh, after the loss of Columbia, then the, we go on to the North Carolina campaign, the Battle of Monroe's Crossing, where Hampton's men uh, almost captured Judson Kilpatrick. They get his uniform and uh, uh, get him catch him right. sleeping, but they they don't quite nab him. Uh, the war ends. Uh, Johnston, Joe Johnston, surrenders his army. Lee surrenders his army. Hampton still doesn't want to surrender. He's willing to go west with uh, uh, Jeff Davis. Uh, what finally gets him to uh, to lay down his arms? Well, um, as he is riding southwestward into into South Carolina to try to catch up with with uh, the Confederate President Jefferson Davis, um, he uh, along the way he finds where his wife has fled to in the town of York, South Carolina, just over the North Carolina line. And at that point, Hampton is wet, exhausted, tired. He's been riding for hours. Uh, he's very discouraged, of course. Um, and uh, I think it was, I really do think it was his wife. And the tr- tradition has it that she convinced him that his duty was not to continue the fight. His duty was now to, uh, to give up the fight and stay with her and the children. And uh, and protect them because now they uh, you know, they were were going to be in the midst of post-war anarchy presumably, and who know, who knew what would happen to them and uh, she needed him there, and so at that point the demand of chivalry is I cannot continue to fight for my own personal honor I've got to you know I've, I've got to look after my family, so that's I think that's how he justified it in his own mind. Well, the theme that runs through. Uh, certainly detected it is is that Hampton is very consistent in, in believing in the code of chivalry as he understands it, and uh, which can lead him to do things like kill foragers, uh, but can also lead him to be magnanimous uh, in victory and and to be very solicitous of 
uh, as you put it earlier, his inferiors or subordinates, whether they are black slaves or white soldiers, uh, people he feels responsible for, he's willing to uh, uh, go very far for them. But after the war, the whole world in which this code was born is upside down. Uh, how, how does Hampton deal with, uh, with the post-war world? Wow, that's a... <laughs> that's a huge question we yeah, could talk about a, for an hour. Question. Maybe I should focus I think... that a little bit. Let me ask specifically, because I alluded to it earlier, I don't want to run out of time without addressing it directly. Um, Hampton is one of the, the main champions among white Southerners for black voting rights. Uh, the, the, before the 15th Amendment was passed and ratified, uh, black men cannot vote in most of the southern states. The, the North... Uh, the, the Congress has to force that upon the southern states through the Constitution, and even there it's eventually thwarted. But Wade Hampton, uh, of all the people, arch-conservative, who would want things the way they were, uh, is one of the prominent southern white voices that says we should allow former slaves to vote. Yeah, and I, I think I think what's confused us is we cannot be misled into thinking that Hampton believed in racial equality. Um, he was just as racist uh, in, in in some ways, as any white late 19th century American. Um, he did think that politically uh, he, they had to bring blacks into the Democratic Party because, I mean, frankly, black, blacks outnumbered whites in South Carolina. Um, and I think he did feel that, that whites did have some obligation to blacks to protect some basic civil rights of theirs. Um, and so he made promises to to blacks uh, for those reasons. Um, he kept those promises again, not because he believed in racial equality, but because he made promises. And uh, not only that, but um, he really wanted to vindicate his good name. Uh, Republicans, many in the North, called Hampton a liar, a hypocrite, a man of violence who couldn't be trusted. And he was determined to show that he would fulfill his promises. Uh, so don't mistake him for a racial liberal or a racial moderate. <laughs> no, and, and, that's, and that you point out uh, in a number of places that that really is the source of confusion about Hampton today. He doesn't fit the caricature. Um, he supported uh, black voting, but he supported limited white suffrage, uh, as you point out. He didn't, want, didn't think all white males should vote either. That's right. That's uh, right. And, and, and he realizes that, that too, that's, politically, that's a non-starter. Um, yes, you're not going to go back to the days without universal white manhood suffrage. Um, well, Rod, I'm sorry to say, as the music starts playing, it means we're at the end of our okay. time, far too soon. Um, but I really enjoyed reading this book and learned a lot from it and uh, really appreciate you being on the show today. Well, thank you, Jerry. I, I enjoyed talking to you, and uh, thanks again for inviting me. And listeners, you will want to get a copy of Wade Hampton, Confederate Warrior to Southern Redeemer by Rod Andrew, Jr., uh, uh, really one of the best uh, Civil War biographies uh, to come along in, in a while. And listeners, again, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.